This fiction about knowing yourself and bringing yourself or your personality into situations actually just creates separation. I don't have to know anything about social work or psychotherapy or the world when I am in that little meditation room with the preschool kids. I have to figure out what's going on inside their head to grab their attention and know what's interesting. Consciousness, the notion of the self, personality structure, transactional analysis, symbiosis, Zen Buddhism, teacher-student, relationships, training yourself in how to think. To subvert is to undermine the existing system of inscribed power and authority. What's happening in the digital space, the virtual world. Much of us live in a hyper-stimulated present where language itself has become the info currency in the sequence of corporate capitalism. The injunction of the virtual world is... The gatekeepers of our speech and written word are global tech monopolies. We cannot transcend or go beyond our lack through craving. What are we going to do? How are we going to live our life? The subversive therapist is about what the virtual world is doing to us and what we can do about it. Hello again and welcome to the podcast. I'm Andrew Archer. This is the final podcast in this series. We left off last time talking about my teaching mindfulness in the Wisconsin prison system, a brief volunteer opportunity. I got to go into solitary confinement units at Boscobel, where Stephen Avery um, from Making a Murderer uh, was, he was in that prison for a period of time. So the kind of the literal solitary confinement of that situation for the inmates and my opportunity to have a relationship with some of those men it can be juxtaposed, I think, with my current position where I'm teaching essentially Zen, but mindfulness meditation to preschool students here in Mankato, Minnesota. The way I'm seeing you know, their development is also a kind of form of confinement, uh, much more of a cultural than a than an actual, you know, prison system. But the fact that all of their behavioral data, all of their activities, monitored, uh, and in most cases stored digitally, can be very difficult for, on one level, them to grow up and understand the system that they're operating in isn't actually reality, but um, this kind of corporate American culture, uh, which really is situated on the the notion of self-determination, an egocentric self that reaches out from inside onto the world, you know, the separation between me and the world. And so that's going to be very difficult to counteract, I think, with this this new generation. So it's part of the driving force for why I wanted to teach meditation. I mean, there's not a rational reason to try and teach three, four, five-year-olds meditation. But again, this idea of teacher-student relationships, uh, and you have to invite yourself into a role of a teacher. I think that's, that's my kind of conclusion. And so what I did was I just went up to the owner of the the childhood center, who I knew, um, but I said, you know, I wanted to try and teach these kids, you know, mindfulness, meditation, 
Uh, and I already had an existing relationship with her. And she said, sure. And we made it happen. And it wasn't the best timing because it was, I believe, April of 2020, maybe May, uh, that we start, first started having these conversations. So it was very much in the midst of the pandemic that uh, this kind of journey began. So it's a once a week situation where I go to the the center and I meet with usually half of the preschool class. It's between six and eight kids for about 20 minutes and then we switch and the other half of the class comes in. My four-year-old is in the class as well. So it's a great opportunity to see him uh, be with him, interacting with his friends, and develop relationships with these kids that he spends a, a great deal of time with. So where I started with them was literally the word mindfulness, uh, which has, of course, been uh, commercialized heavily uh, in Western culture. But what mindfulness is really about is is remembering. It's not so much about I mean, it is paying attention to what you're doing, but it's about paying attention to your, they call karmic activity in Buddhism, is what are the patterns to your relationality, your interpersonal experiences. And transactional analysis, you know, has its own language for the same thing. But we start with that word and how we would do that was in the beginning of the session, we'd go around in a circle and I'd say, you know, we're going to the zoo. I'm Andrew, and we're going to the zoo, and I want to see a polar bear. And so then, you know, Jane would say, I want to see a tiger, and Joe would say, an elephant. But each student had to remember what the other people had already said. So you get to the very last kid, and they have to remember what Jane, John, Timmy, everybody had said, because you're you're practicing remembering. Uh, but you need attention uh, to do that. So the big takeaway was that from this teaching experience, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, is that I had to figure out how to grab their attention. In the, in the same way, I guess, that you know these digital platforms have figured out how to grab and manipulate our own attention. And it was through story. So I tried lots of different things in terms of teaching them breathing and um, you know paying attention to their body and getting control of themselves. I went through the, uh, the personality structure of transactional analysis, the parent-adult-child, but when I talked to them about it, I talked to them about a stoplight, red, yellow, green. So the moralizing parent-ego state is like the prejudicial red light. It says you stop, you stop right here. There's no uh, deviation. It's exactly where you're supposed to stop. This is how you're supposed to live your life is the the parent ego state. The yellow ego state, the kids would say that's calm. You know, it means caution in terms of a yellow light, but it's fundamentally about paying attention to your surroundings. And then the green is all ego. It's all the potency of the child state. You know, go, go, go. It's fast, it's, you know, acceleration as a means to connect. And one of the things I would do was I I brought in uh, these different colored balls, red, yellow, and green, and I 
I showed them, you know, the stoplight, it's always these these changing uh, states of mind or people in our head versus uh, the idea of a single, you know, self-existing self or a separate self. What I used for that was uh, a baseball. So I had these three, you know, the yellow, red, green balls. And then in the other situation was just this baseball because um, that's what it feels like, one, you know, solid self at the at the center of the brain kind of thing. And, uh, and so then in comparison, I would juggle the red, green, and yellow ball at the same time. That is this constant, fluid changing of states of mind that phenomenologically feels like uh, one central object, central thing. And so all these different <laughs> approaches <laughs> were were tried and tested, and uh, there were certainly many mistakes and just this, the sheer unpredictability of a group of mostly four-year-olds uh, makes it really impossible to plan. So week in and week out, I didn't plan an agenda or focus on what I was going to do. Occasionally, I had good ideas. But the thing that stuck was at the end of the session... I would tell them a story. So it started with uh, The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein because I was attempting to write about that and I had read it so many times with my oldest son that I you know, had it memorized. And so that would really grab their attention. Uh, it's a simple story. There's two objects there. It's the tree and the boy back and forth. And that's all you need to really know because it's a relationship between the tree and the boy. And it's a symbiotic one. And of course that comes to a head when the when the boy wants to make money. He wants a family for himself. He wants uh, you know, a house. He wants kids, uh, etc. But that evolved into pretty soon the kids were acting out the giving tree. And so one kid was the tree and the other kid was the boy. And, you know, the boy gathers up the tree's apples and, you know, uh, cuts down her branches and eventually cuts down the trunk to make a boat. And so it's very uh, joyous to watch them pretend, you know, to cut down the tree and, and do all this stuff. Uh, but the, the point here is that the relationship just evolved organically. And, and that's really a credit to uh, the administration here that allowed me to do what I needed to do in the in the kind of classroom meditation setting and speaks to the level of trust they had for someone who had zero experience um, teaching meditation to kids. They just um, went with it. So the you know first story was The Giving Tree, and then I told them the story about the, the novel, The Memory Police. And, and the interesting thing was that I had to figure out how to explain it to a little kid and how to make it interesting. So when I was telling them the story about the memory police, you know, which I spoke about in a previous episode, uh, it's a Japanese novel about an island where these frequent disappearances happen. Um, and the citizens of the island just kind of go with it. And there's this kind of apathy. So roses disappear, calendars, and eventually their right arm, you know, disappears. And they say, well, well, you know, at least we have the other arm 
kind of thing. But so when I told him the story, and again, this was spontaneous. I mean, I guess the point here is that it was basically all child ego state, which is quite, you know, uncomfortable for me, especially at first. But when I told him that story, I focused on the ending where their arm disappears and then their other arm disappears and then their leg disappears. And, you know, pretty soon I'm falling over on the floor and they think it's hilarious because we've built up together these conceptual identifications and and, and what I what I really came to understand was that you know they could they could hold two ideas at the same time so they could hold the the tree and the boy in the giving tree or the the memory police and the citizens of the island and so you got to keep coming back to reinforce those constructs to hold their attention. And the thing I wanted to share in this episode was what happened um, last week. There was a newer uh, student to the group. And for the last few um, sessions, I've been telling him this story that I just made up uh, with my kids one night, you know, during the bedtime ritual. And the story's about this shark named Bill, and he's walking down the street, and he encounters somebody that, you know, doesn't like people like him, uh, which is actually, you know, sharks wearing pants and, you know, all these other kind of bizarre ideas in, uh, in this story. But what happens is Bill eventually flies in an airplane. He goes to California. He ends up on the beach and the lifeguard tells everyone on the beach to get into the water because there's a shark on the beach and again it's this duality ocean beach you know water sand there's really no uh delineating line between the ocean and the sand because they're interconnected uh but you can almost see in the kids uh eyes that they're pairing or, or jumping back and forth between these concepts. So what happens is the people run into the ocean, but then the lifeguard sees a shark out in the ocean, so he tells everybody to run back in, onto the beach, but then remembers that Bill the shark is there on the beach, so they go back in the ocean. This goes you know, back and forth. And again, it's, it's kind of a purposeless you know, part of the story, but what's happening is you're continuing to try and capture their attention. So what happens after that is Bill eventually just, you know, crawls into the water. He swims out into the ocean, and then the shark that's in the the water eats Bill. And so they can hold that again. There's a shark, and then there's Bill. And then another shark eats the shark that ate Bill. And another shark eats that shark. And so this goes goes for a couple times, but so how I finished the story, and this is where this this new student, let's call him John, um, where I really grabbed him, is I said, and then from down below in the ocean, a killer whale swam straight up right into the shark. This is the shark that had eaten all these other um, sharks. And so when I said that he bumped up into the shark from underneath, because... You know, I'd been watching YouTube videos of killer whales killing a giant, you know, blue whale and stuff. When the killer whale hits the shark, I jump off of my uh, 
meditation cushion just kind of pop upwards. So in the moment, the killer whale, the shark, me, this boy John are all the same thing. And he starts laughing. Like that laugh when little kids, they start to, they sound like kind of a machine gun. And it's just deep in their belly. (laughs) And it's so contagious that I was laughing in the same way. And so these concepts of John, you know, me, shark, killer whale, they're all so uh, embedded and inscribed that it's, it's almost like a kind of ego dissolution because all that's happening is this sort of incredible joy and uh, suspension of self, I would say, uh, and just amazing, incredible experience because this kid and I weren't dialoguing directly, but it was clear that there was a thread in terms of what I was saying, the story, and then, of course, the hook, the punchline um, at the end that's that's embodied because I popped off of uh, the cushion for a second. So it was kind of like breaking the, the fourth wall or something. <laughs> the, the story became uh, reality, and we both knew it, experienced it without having to say anything. Of course, there was uh, laughter, and it was just um, a buildup and funny and, and that kind of thing. So this this concept from Zen of teacher-student is really to figure out and understand your role in a situation, to know how you're supposed to be. You know, the Eightfold Path in Buddhism, um, one is right understanding, is one arm of the Eightfold Path, and you have to understand relationship dynamics, but this fiction about knowing yourself and bringing yourself or your personality into situations actually just creates separation. I don't have to know anything about social work or psychotherapy or the world when I am in that little meditation room with the preschool kids. I have to figure out what's going on inside their head to grab their attention and know what's interesting. So, of course, whales and sharks and crocodiles and and trees and those kinds of things um, are easy concepts for them to to grab onto. But that is essentially our work moving forward. And I think the the critique of the virtual world is useful because it cuts across political lines. Uh, people on the the right are very critical of the monopoly power of Silicon Valley, and then those on the left obviously understand this age of surveillance capitalism is is what Shoshana Zuboff calls it. And so what's very important is to let go of identity construction, because if you're not those Trump-loving people, then all of a sudden anybody that looks like Trump-loving person is separate from you. You can't have a dialogue with them. And I I strongly believe that we can come together around these issues of essentially authority and power. You know, the podcast is called The Subversive Therapist because I look back on experiences I'm always trying to challenge 
power structures and question authority and try to kind of dispel common uh, beliefs. And and I was reading uh, Franco Berardi's book Heroes recently about mass murder and suicide, which is the, the subtitle. And he talked about, you know, the one central aspect of fascism is identification. So if you identify as something, if you identify as Christian, if you identify as a man, as a, a woman, as straight, gay, you know, white, black, is that that's, that leads to a sort of susceptibility to being captured uh, by a, a fascist movement. And Eric Byrne talked about, you know, the little fascist inside our heads, is that, that you know, good, evil, fascism, etc., isn't outside of us, out there in the world, creeping in the shadows. It's inside of all of us, to a degree. It's, of course, a archaic, uh, uh, kind of primordial part of the child ego state. Uh, it's a kind of relic. But, but when Byrne talked about it, you know, he, he said there's this part that wants tissue damage, flesh and blood, um, and then it goes back, you know, across time and history. And it's a kind of loose connection, but I feel like, again, this psycho part of us is what I'm calling it, uh, the not okay part of us, the sense of lack that craves, you know, this is what is being exploited and manipulated by the virtual world. And, and that has, that helps me to understand, you know, why would you watch, you know, Saddam Hussein's hanging, you know, a number of years ago? I mean, uh, if you were in a social group, would you decide to do that? Or is it, you know, when you're in your bedroom by yourself, scrolling through YouTube, I think it, it pulls on that part of us that wants to see a car accident or somebody killed or some kind of violence, um, that we really need to work on you know there needs to be a kind of global therapeutic for this dark side of human nature and if you haven't guessed it you know my thoughts are uh meditation zen these teacher-student relationships uh the forces of fascism are are within all of us and we need to work together uh, to create uh, a peaceful society, um, a society that is governed on equality and uh, diversity of relationality, diverse, diverse perspectives, um, not this, you know, quote-unquote white man's world where economics uh, trumps all other aspects of society. I mean, it's such a clear thing with... Uh, pandemic where everything was about cases and the curve and flattening the curve as people were dying they were just talked about in this bureaucratic way and it was always situated around what was really important which was like getting back to quote-unquote normal getting the economy the the machine um running again so i'm, I'm rambling and this was meant to be a less um sort of political <laughs> episode but it's just an example you know, a simple thing that you can do, meditation, develop a practice, and then go, 
and try and insert yourself somewhere in some social system where you can teach it to people because nobody is going to uh, sort of bust you and say, wait, you're not, you don't know what you're talking about because nobody knows uh, how to meditate or what it does or any of this stuff. But from a fly on the wall perspective, they can see if you're sitting there in relative stillness for a period of time. So you don't have to be some expert to do this. You certainly don't need an app, Headspace, Calm. You need a community to do this. So that's where I will kind of end it, is that encourage people to subvert you know, systems of power, but you have to do that relationally. You're going to have to get yourself into communities, insert yourself into situations where you can challenge the status quo and wake up people to understand the kind of dilemma that they're in. And I think this newest generation, I mean, it's clear to me because I work with so many kind of uh, Gen Z or I generation, the kids born after 1995, is that they are totally captured by these virtual reality systems. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they're almost all extremely self-critical, passive, people-pleasers, terribly anxious, uh, depressed, uh, don't know how to have actual real-world relationships with people. I'm terrified to think of what this even newer generation, you know, these kids that I'm working with, what kind of um, pathology we're going to see as these these authoritative power structures uh, really prevail in the culture centered around competition, you know, this survival of the fittest, kind of social Darwinism that is inscribed in the moment, in the present uh, frame that needs to be addressed and it's going to be sort of uh, challenged through cooperation, collective uh, organizing, um, really enacting our own powerlessness to sit and actively not do something, you know, whether that's in the streets, sitting down, or in our homes or in the community practicing meditation, not this constant consumption of media, of, of the info machine is what Berardi calls it. So I think I'll leave it there. It's been really fun doing this series of podcasts. I hope people enjoy it, get something out of it. And I'm going to kind of reevaluate and see where this podcast goes from here. I'm your host, Andrew Archer. This is the Subversive Therapist. Thanks for joining me. Take care.